in life where uh, I remember the music I listened to when I was younger and when I was in DeKalb at Northern Illinois University, I'd drive around, much like your dad, I drove a vacuum truck, a big vacuum on the back of a pickup, and I would suck the soot out of boilers and air ducts and farmhouses, and as I drove, I would listen to a band that had just issued an album called, the band was called Queen. And I'm sure none of you homeschool kids have ever heard of the band Queen, you know. And uh, the thing that's noteworthy about Queen is that uh, it was Freddie Mercury, right? He was, he was a completely homosexual man. He died of AIDS, and uh, there, there, there are some pieces of art that are uh, very self-revelatory. In a way, often artists deceive you about who they are, but Freddie didn't. And on that album was a song called uh, Father to Son, and it went joyful to sound. The word goes around from father to son to son. And I loved the song then, I guess I still love it now. But this poor man knew that it was God's intent that we would live from father to son to son. And so we see that with, uh, with Doug, with Nate, with Ben. Uh, we see it uh, here this morning with you and your children. And... It is, you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized that the whole point of raising children is so you can die. And it sounds morbid, but it's really not. I mean, what is it that makes a man able to die? Well, what makes him able to die is that his son picks up his work and carries it on. And that's what Jesus talks about in John. He says, I'm here to do my father's work, you know. And uh, so anyhow, it's a great privilege to be here and to be able to share with you uh, this humble work. Uh, the last time I was here was when you particularize, which is the Presbyterian word for when we say, okay, you've done enough, you can be a real church now, you know. <laughs> and so I'm very happy to be here and to be here with my sons. You might think Joseph is my only son, but your daddy is actually my son. And so are the McNeilies. So are the, I, I don't know, would Rob allow me? <laughs> Rob. Usually drummers are a little bit stiff, you know. <laughs> Where are you, Rob? Can I call you my, can I call you my son? Okay, good. All right. Now, let's go to the scripture. Anyhow, I'm, Mary Lee and I are very happy to be here. The scripture today is Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. You don't have to look at it. You can just listen because it's a story, okay? And it is God's word, and therefore it is what? Eternally true. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. 
That's a little bit stiff. Uh, favored one is caris. So, uh, graced one, blessed one. Do you know any? Uh, do you know any kid's name caris? Uh, that's the same word. That's a Greek word, and that's what's used here. Favored one, caris. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Oh, my goodness. Okay. She was confused at this statement and kept running it around in her brain trying to figure out what kind of greeting this was. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. You remember at the very beginning it says, now in the sixth month. So this whole story is charted by trimesters. It is. This is a woman-centric story, and it's a beautiful story. She who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here and there around the world are quiet, godly men and women. And they live lives of faithfulness. Since godliness and pride are mutually exclusive, godliness and pride, mutually exclusive, we usually don't hear stories told about these people. And if we discover them, we discover them by accident. They never never go around announcing their importance. They don't have, uh, what's, what's the dude's name, haircuts. The guy that's gone now from the World Cup. Don't tell me who won, if you know. <laughs> What's, you know, the obnoxious one. Yeah. They don't have Ronaldo haircuts. They'd rather die than announce their own humility. Isn't that such a description of social media? Is everybody out humbling each other, <laughs> you know? They're quietly content to live humbly in God's presence, looking to heaven and life eternal for their true home. The world often thinks of them as dull and drab, without drive or lacking ambition. They don't wear lots of makeup. They don't have Ronaldo haircuts. Instead, it's their good works that clothe them. It's their humble and quiet spirit that makes them handsome or beautiful. And for these things, they have the approval of God. 
To see their godliness, you'll need to catch them unaware. It's kind of like catching a buck in deer season. Don't startle such a woman with lots of talk and noise because this woman has a deep-seated aversion to noise. As I read that, this is an old sermon I've preached probably as much as any sermon I've ever preached. Sorry, we do that. As I was reading it and I read that thing, I thought, man, that is Heidi. She hates noise. You know, not, I'm not talking about kids. I'm just talking about people that are important. She, she got it from her mother and father, if you've ever met her mother. You know, the whole family hates noise. Hi. More sons. Okay, all right, I'll, I'm coming back. All right. She doesn't want recognition from anyone other than her father in heaven whom she loves. She often lives in poverty. She's rarely completed much schooling. Usually, she lives and dies in the same place she was born. She only takes trips out of necessity, and I thought, well, that's not Heidi. Heidi loves to take trips. (laughs) She doesn't have the itch to travel, which I've been doing. About the only mark she leaves on God's green earth when she dies is the lives she is touched with her deeds of mercy, and typically, the majority of them are her children. Many is the cup of cold water she has given in the name of her Savior, Jesus Christ. Often to her children. And she would never describe it that way. She'd just say she gave a drink. If she has any inscription on her tombstone beyond her name and dates of birth and death, it's usually something simple, something like she went about doing good until the Lord called her home. Down in Savannah, Georgia, there's a woman named Mary Jane Green buried, and her epitaph, the writing on the tomb, is this. To the stranger, her virtues cannot be known. To her friends, her memory is her best epitaph. We don't have any tombstone for Mary. Don't, don't, don't let the Roman Catholic Church fool you. And she is the mother of Jesus. There's no tombstone other than the words of Scripture which quietly, without any fuss, tell us this. That the Blessed Virgin, Mary, was the one chosen by God to bear his son in her womb. And this is Mary. And the Bible gives us this command concerning her. All generations will call her blessed. And it's not patronizing. We don't need to believe all the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church about Blessed Virgin Mary to wonder at this tender scene we read here in the Gospel of Luke. Now, according, as I pointed out, to verse 26, John the Baptist was six months old within the womb of his mother, Elizabeth, when the Virgin Mary had her pregnancy announced to her. And when it was announced, it was forthcoming. You will conceive. Very important thing. Future tense. It says back in verse 24, Elizabeth became pregnant with John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And it says, after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And it says, she kept herself in seclusion for five months. 
And then it says two verses later, now in the six months, so that's the reference to the fact that she's hiding out. It doesn't tell us why she kept herself in seclusion. It's, it's worth thinking about because it's in Scripture and it's profitable. Why do you think she kept herself in seclusion? Think about it. Now, it was Gabriel that announced this pregnancy. And when you, when you hear the word angel, all it means is messenger. Um, the same with the word apostle. Apostle is, is, is somebody that represents somebody else. We, you know, we sort of get all mystical about these things. So the messenger, but God's messenger, God's messenger actually named Gabriel. And it's one of only two angels who are named in Scripture. So we got Gabriel and boop, 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 boop. We have come on. I can see you're thinking about it. Come on. Oh, you're failing your mother. Are you homeschooled? See? I know. I know. I know. Don't worry. I know. I know where I stand and the generosity that I am. Yeah. Come on. Oh, wait, where? Right on, dude. Michael. Michael. Who's scarier? Absolutely. Why? Yeah. Well, so's, so's, uh, so's Gabriel. But Michael is known as the warrior. Okay? We think there are seven of them, and that there are only two that are named. And there are reasons scripturally to believe there are a total of seven in Revelation. And we see Michael, uh, let me read a couple places where Michael shows up. In Daniel 12.1, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And then in Jude 1.9, do you know what it says in Jude 1.9? Do you know what Michael did? Anybody know? Any of the children? Any of you know? what it says about in Jude. Let me read it to you. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, what did he say? The Lord rebuke you. So apparently when Moses died, do you remember who buried Moses? Do you remember this? This is why we know that burial is good. It was God that buried Moses. Isn't that interesting? God buried Moses. What a kind thing. Calvin says that the last office of man, you know God loved Moses because God performed the last office of man. Beautiful picture there. So apparently there was a struggle for the body. Satan was involved and there was a contest for it, and Michael fought in the contest. But Michael didn't, didn't go all dad walkie. You know how dads rail, you know. I have said a hundred thousand times, don't put things on the stairs. You know, you ever heard your dad go, like, what's the word rail? 
I won't have. I've railed about things on the stairs. I won't have. And what we read is when Michael was contending for the body of Moses, he did not rail, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Isn't that something? It's kind of like when you say, when daddy gets home. You know? It's showing deference to the, to the real authority. And then in Revelation 12 says, and it says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And so angels are mighty, mighty creatures. And we should be very thankful that there are angels, especially angels who watch over our little ones. This is what scripture teaches us. So anyhow, the angel whose principal job was being a messenger is Gabriel. And Gabriel was the one that announced the pregnancy to Zacharias of his wife Elizabeth. And now the same angel Gabriel comes and announces her future pregnancy to Mary. So we are told that God sent this same messenger and that he sent, he had sent to Zacharias, he sent her, this angel to Mary's home in a town called, come on guys, just say it. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, to Nazareth. And let me tell you, hey, listen, there's a big difference. Look at me. Hey, 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 there's a big difference between Nazareth and Bethlehem. Bethlehem was associated with King David. Bethlehem was a glorious place. Bethlehem was down in Judea. Where was Nazareth? Do you know? Yeah. And what was Galilee? What was Galilee? Galilee was called Galilee of the... Did you just say it? Do you know? Any of you know? Galilee of the... Come on. The Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, when a Jew uses the word Gentile, is he making a compliment? No. No. The Jews called the Gentiles goyim. Do you know that when my daddy was growing up in New York City, they had somebody who was called a Sabbath goyim. And this was the person. So we had to buy a new stove when we got back from Germany. And our stove went all wonkers. And so I began to look for stoves. And do you know what they have? When you look for stoves, they have something called any of you know? Yeah, yeah, a Sabbath stove. What is a Sabbath stove? Well, a Sabbath goyim. So a Sabbath goyim is the person that Jews who are Orthodox pay to come and light their fire to push the buttons on their elevators so that they don't work on the Sabbath. Okay? And so a Sabbath goyim is a dirty person, that's really what going means to Jews, somebody who, who never keeps the law and therefore is dirty, that they pay to do the work they're not allowed to do because they're clean. 
So it's kind of like a maid in a hotel room. All right. And so the angel comes down to Nazareth in Galilee of the Gentiles. So think of it as Galilee of the Goy. And it's not a compliment. It's kind of the way we look at West Virginia. You know, uh, Michael Clary recently did a whole series of texts about how he despised his background when he was a hipster church planner. You go on Twitter and read it. It's a great, it's a great uh, mea culpa. It's a great confession of sin. And his roots are from West Virginia. And I would say among those of us in the eastern third of the U.S., I think West Virginia is a good spot to say we look down on. Everybody looks down on other races, on other locations. All of us have prejudices. You know, the Germans, the north and south of Germany is about like the north and south of the United States. You know, everybody looks down on the Bavarians because they're fat and they're happy and they sit at the same table in restaurants. You know, if, the, if somebody comes in, they'll sit. And then up north, they never talk to you. They're cold, they're distant. And the northerners know what, and the southerners, and, and they look down on it. Very is where you get your pretzels from, right? So they feed well, you know, but nobody looks up to them in the north. They drive be beamers, but... So in this, in where we live, this would be Green County. So just west of Bloomington is a county called Greene County and Owen County, and they're utterly despised by people in Bloomington. Completely despised. Mary Lee and I, about once a week, go to a restaurant that we discovered out in Greene County. It's called a diner. Yeah, does it have a name or is it just diner? Hendricksville Diner. And if I were to show you a picture of this diner, you would have a good picture of where Mary lived and where the angel went, where, where God chose, because we know that Galilee was of the Gentiles, and we also know that I, I believe it was Nathaniel when he heard that Jesus could be the Messiah and that he was from Nazareth. Do you remember the response? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? So I don't know where you and Cincy look down on, because I don't live here. I suspect it's over in Kentucky. No? See, your sister denied it before the service, too. But I, I don't know. I, I know Indiana looks down on Kentucky, you know, and I bet, is it Kentucky? Okay, Kentucky. And in Kentucky, the West looks down on the East. So when we were in high school, Mary Lee and I used to go to Letcher County. Well, Letcher County is south of Hazard. And so this is where I, you know, I think it would be very fair to say that God sent his son to dwell in the womb of a virgin girl. in Hazard, Kentucky. Pewaukee. And I, I try to get you to think about where you look down on, because 
If you don't do that, you can't enter into this story. You have to know what humility is in order to aspire to it. <laughs> you know? And so you have to think about who you look down on. Don't think about who looks down on you. Think about who you look down on. Think about who it would depress you to have to visit. No aspiration. None. And this is who God announces that his son will dwell in her womb. Now, speaking of humility, if you were God, would you agree to being placed in the womb of a woman? Don't you think some way could be designed that would allow you to escape that indignity? I mean, we just take these things for granted. But we shouldn't. We should meditate on the parts of Scripture that God has deposited in his word, believing that every single word of it is profitable. And listen, today, how could anything be more profitable than an uneducated, young, betrothed woman, girl, really, 12 to 14, he was probably 18 to 21, how could anything be more profitable than God choosing not to bypass the womb? It's a matter of great... Um, well, let me be a little autobiographical here for a second and tell you that my mother and my mother-in-law were both uh, extremely competent women, intellectually in every way. And because I came of age at the time where the nation turned everything upside down, um, I could see with my eyes how condescending people were to Mary Lee's mother and to mine. And it infuriated me. It absolutely infuriated me that people looked down at my mother and my mother-in-law because I loved them. I, I wished I could have the heart of my, especially my mother-in-law. And then Mary Lee gave birth, and immediately I saw that she had become less of a woman than she had been when she was starting the Women's Center out at Westmont College and had a pierced nose. You know, she began to repent of her, uh, what, Attitude? Is that what we're going to call it? Mary had no attitude. It's so sweet. So anyhow, and so I began to think about feminism, and I realized that feminism is an attack on the Virgin Mary. And if someone's going to attack the Virgin Mary from a despised city in a despised area, are you going to let them? Would you let somebody attack the Virgin Mary? And yet that's what our world does today. Our world despises women who are pregnant and have children. They refer to them as barefoot and pregnant. And listen... <laughs> You always have to decide whether you want God's approval or man's approval. 
It's a lifelong decision. You have to keep making it every single day. And don't ever be ashamed of being your mother. And so I do want to make this very personal to all of you that we live in a world that hates women. And so women are vanishing. They're becoming men. When we traveled around Europe, I looked at the different countries and I can, I can knock them out for you. I can tell you that there's still femininity in Italy. There's still femininity, sorry, in France. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> There's still femininity in Crete. There's, there's a little bit left in Spain, Barcelona. There's almost none left in Switzerland. And there's almost none left in Germany. And so guess what? In Switzerland and Germany, guess what? All the people are old. They're all using walkers. Why? Well, partly they're not chasing little ones around anymore, you know. But partly because there are no young people. If there are young people, they probably are people of color. You know, they're Moroccan. You know, an explosion of kebabs restaurants all over Europe. Because the Africans are coming up. And they're taking over the jobs. And so I want you to think in terms of refugees in Europe. I want you to think in terms of illegal aliens in America. I want you to think in terms of Kentucky, of eastern Kentucky. I want you to think uneducated. I want you to think very, very young. And this is what God chose. And if you think that this was a one-off, think about the shepherds. And if you think that's a one-off, think about the fact that there was no room in the inn. And if you think that's a one-off, watch Jesus his whole life refusing to be the one that finally deals with the tyrants. No, no, no. He, when he was born, was the king of the universe. And it says that every mouth will proclaim his lordship. And yet he lived a life of complete and utter humility. You know, he wasn't a star on the soccer team. You know, he didn't play the trombone better than anybody else. His mother was not aspirational through him. Do you know the word aspirational? You know, sometimes you think you have to be something because you know if you don't, your dad will be disappointed. Well, it doesn't work with the Belchers. Let's go to the bedding houses. Let's go to the thistle tents, you know. I mean, you know how your dad could be disappointed if you, you know, like had long hair, right? That would, that would do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so all of us are aspirational. I remember when my daughter, who was just this wonderful daughter, decided that she wanted to get married before she graduated from college. And I'm like, no. I'm like, no. She's a National Merit Scholar, right? No. She had a scholarship to IU. No. And so Mary Lee and I you know, came up with reasons that were good the first time around when her future husband asked. But then the second time around, it was stretching it a little bit, you know? 
And one day she looks at me and she says, Daddy, I'm only doing what you taught me to do. And that was a rebuke because what? Well, I was proud and I wanted my daughter to show off my genes. I mean, honestly, isn't that the way we are as parents? And all of a sudden I realized that what really mattered to me wasn't my daughter's godliness, but rather that she got a good degree and proved that she was intellectually competent. Is that Mary? It's not Mary. Is that this church? It's not this church. There's Paul sitting back in the very back of the room with his back against the wall. You know, if he knew how important this church was, he would not sit back against the wall like that. <laughs> Don't you know that it's weird? Why do you have a weird man in your church? Well, that's a story that could be told. Now listen, I'm being very personal because the story about Mary is extremely personal. God deals with Mary in a way that honors her. Blessed are you among women. And God deals with Mary also in a way that is uh, extremely difficult for Mary. You know, you think about being given the birth of a child who is, from the word get-go, vulnerable. Life hangs on the line. And that's what it was with Jesus. Jesus, being given to Mary, subjected her to perpetual fears and griefs. It wasn't just Jesus who was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. His mother was. You remember the scene when he died? You remember? And all the disciples had abandoned him. You remember that? And you remember who was there under the cross? One disciple whose name was what? Moses. Who was standing under the cross as Jesus died? Which disciple? I'm proud of you. You're going to be a National Merit Scholar. <laughs> it was John. What do we call John? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is so exciting. That's right. Yeah, he's the, 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 the apostle of love. Yeah, okay. And you remember that Jesus, as he died, did what? He cared for his what? Yeah, uh, yeah, his death cared for his people, that's right. But he cared for who, specifically? His mother. Do you remember he said, woman, behold your son, and, son, and then he said to John, behold your mother. And it says what? It says from that day what? It says from that day she went into John's house. That she was John's mother.
This is not at all how I intended to preach, but you have so many children here. And I have realized in the last year that God's truth is always simply a generation from death. And that if we don't teach our children the essential things, we just take it for granted that they'll learn them. It's not enough to repeat the stories and to sing the songs. We have to instruct them. And we have to instruct our children today about the beauty of motherhood. And it's not condescending. It's not patronizing. It's within a generation of death. We have to lift up motherhood. God did not abhor the virgin's womb. And so we have to lift up virginity. We have to lift up womanhood. It's not patronizing. You know, it can be so easy for men to avoid saying things like this because they know that it's impolite to talk about women in civilized society. It's the reason PCA caved on all things sexual, because in the South you don't talk about women. Gentlemen don't do that. But how can you be a gentleman and be helpful as a shepherd? The two are antithetical. You know, if you're going to be a shepherd, you have to defend the sheep. And you especially today have to defend the ewes. Not because you look down on them, but because you respect them. I was talking to my best friend and his wife on the phone. He's a pastor in Linden, Washington. Uh, Dutch. Big Dutch church. We've known them our whole lives, our best friends. And it's lately become clear to me that one of the failures is that pastors don't talk to their wives about the things going on in the church. You know, you learn patriarchy, you learn you're the head, and so you're the head. You don't need your wife when it comes to being an authority. Well, of course, what that does is that means that you don't get the information from the source that's better than anybody else in the church, which is your wife, you know. She knows the straight dope, you know. And so I was talking to Robert and Fame about this on the phone, and I said, you know, I try to tell pastors today that everything I did in my ministry, I did because my wife told me to do it. And Fema immediately said, oh, Tim, really? And I said, of course. She said, well, I'm so happy to hear that. And I'm like, dude, or dudette, you know, what on earth? You didn't know that? If we will stop and observe the women in our lives, and be truthful with ourselves. Who has formed your character if you grew up in a Christian home? Who's formed your character more, your father or your mother? You say, well, my dad. I say it's probably because he married a good woman. I mean, honestly, that's about the highest we aspire to as men, is marrying the right mother for our children. And who do you think our wife married? She didn't marry for love. No woman ever marries for love. She marries to get a father for her children. Doesn't mean she doesn't love, although your mother always loved your father. I could never figure it out. 
because he seemed to take her for granted. And I would say, don't take that woman for granted. You remember me saying this to you when you were a college student, you know. And so I want us to look at Mary and see that as the Christmas carol says, lo, he abhorred not the virgin's womb. And that means that if God sent his angel, his archangel, to Mary, and then if Joseph stayed married to her, betrothed and married her, if Joseph protected her when Herod wanted to kill the little baby that she'd given birth to, if Jesus on the cross made sure that she had a future that was safe by saying to John, whom he loved, take care of her. And if we live in a day that despises long hair on women, and I use that, by the way, as my litmus test for the culture, I think length of hair is about as accurate as you can get. And of course, in, in Switzerland, all the women are efficient, and they all have very short hair. Germany, too. If we live in a world that despises women who nurse children, women who are not mouthy, women who do not desire to be president of the European Union. When Mary Lee and I were out one night for dinner, where, what city was it? It was, uh, what is, where's the parliament in Europe, uh, the EU parliament? It's not Belgium. Strasbourg. Did you say Strasbourg? I think it is Strasbourg. So we're in Strasbourg, which is where who was? Who was in Strasbourg? Come on. It's, it rhymes with Luther. Oh, you did say Bucer. Okay, yeah, it was Bucer. This was, this was where Calvin would go when he was persecuted in Geneva. He would go to Strasbourg and he'd hang out with his best friend named Martin Bucer. And so we went there to see. They have this statue of Albert Schweitzer sitting on a bench, and Jürgen and I took a picture of me and him. And it's the same church where Bucer was the pastor. And, but they have a statue to Albert Schweitzer, who was a pastor there. There's almost no notice that Martin Bucer was there, let alone Calvin working with Bucer, you know. And so we're there, and we go to this fancy schmancy restaurant right by the... the the big cathedral church or whatever it is. And as we're leaving, and I mean it's a very old medieval restaurant, beams, post and beam construction, you know. And as we're leaving, all of a sudden, all these dudes, they're like, there's a secret service agent in my brother's church, and they all look precisely like the secret service agent, you know. And they were muscling their way, keeping you from getting to the stairway, and there were people coming, and it's like, what up? is going on here. This is not Mary and Nazareth of Galilee. You know, this is something impotent, you know. And so we worked our way down the stairs and we got outside and it was the president of the European Union and it was what's-his-face's wife. What's the guy's name that runs Ukraine? Yeah, Zelensky, is that his name? Yeah, so it's his wife. So it was Zelensky's wife with the president of the European Union, both beautiful women, surrounded by muscle men. I don't know why they didn't have, like, Griner protecting them as, you know. 
Why, why don't they have women protecting them? I don't get that. But anyhow, they were important women. Are they more important than your mother? Are they more important than Mary? We must return to honoring the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because to honor Mary is to honor our Lord Jesus Christ. We must return to honoring motherhood. We have to do this. It is godliness. And it's hard. It's very hard. Many years ago, I somehow came on a copy of uh, J. Gresham Machen's book called The Virgin Birth. Or is that what it's called, or is it The Virgin Mary? It's The Virgin Birth. J. Gresham Machen is one of a very few heroes in the 20th century that I have. Uh, one of them is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I hope you know who he was. One of them was Francis Schaeffer. One of them was Martin Lloyd-Jones. You've heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? You probably have. And one of them is J. Gresham Machen. And there's, J. Gresham Machen was a man who saw that all God's sheep were being attacked by attacking scripture. He went over to Germany to study, and he studied with these brilliant intellectuals, and all of them were deconstructing the word of God. Very sophisticated ways. They were taking a pickaxe and a sledgehammer to the Bible. And they were destroying it. And he got over. He was the son of a lawyer from a very wealthy, established family in Baltimore. So he had a pedigree. He wasn't a mongrel mutt from Nazareth of Galilee. And he got over there to get his graduate degree in, in New Testament. And his faith began to fail because he was studying with people that despised God, despised truth, despised God's scriptures, and they were teaching him all the failures of scripture. But you know what he did? And I hadn't thought of this until just now, but you know what saved J. Gresham Machen? What saved him is that he wrote his mother. He wrote his mother, and his mother protected his soul. And so instead of him becoming a godless unbeliever, what he did was he came back to the United States and he took it to them at Princeton because they were going the same direction. You know, they had missionaries like Pearl Buck who didn't believe in the virgin birth or anything. You know, the church was filled with people. Right? Right? Do you know that when I was um, 21 and... 22, and just had our first child, just gotten married. I worked at a Presbyterian church in Madison, Wisconsin, while I went to UW-Madison. And do you know there was a very sweet lady there that played the organ? I can't remember her name. I think her first name was Lois. She was just this sweet woman. And I liked her. I was a custodian. It was a real large church, so I did everything. So anyhow, I went to seminary, then went to or went to Boulder, then went to seminary, then came back to the area, and I was reading the denominational magazine. And that false shepherd pastor, you know, they're false shepherds. They're men who protect, pretend to protect the flock, but they destroy it. And that false shepherd pastor brought an intellectual theologian, a friend of his, into the church to be a theologian in residence. 
You know, it's like a sort of, it's kind of like a, an adopted dog, you know, that people bring in their home. It's a joke. But that's about how I think about this man, because he came into that church and he began to hold seminars teaching people that you couldn't trust scripture. So the shepherd brought in an intellectual to tell everybody in the church that it really didn't matter whether the Bible is true. So I'm reading the denominational magazine, and of course it's this is just celebrating the denominational magazine. And I read this woman, this organist, that was just sweet, simple woman. And she says, I have now learned that it really doesn't matter whether Jesus was born of a virgin and whether he, he was born in Bethlehem. Now I realize that my faith is larger than that. So her pastor had used his friend and intellectual to destroy her soul. Because if you deny the virgin birth, J. Gresham Machen, his probably his second most famous book is The Virgin Birth. What do you think it is? The whole book is his defense of the historicity, the truthfulness of the virgin birth. It's a long book. So great J. Gresham Machen, he came back to the United States and he took it to them. He wrote a book in defense of the virgin birth. He wasn't above defending women. He thought it was his life's work. Do you know that today there are many people that despise J. Gresham Machen? They despise him. You know why they despise him? They despise him because he fought as if it mattered instead of as if it were a game. He was deadly serious. Do you know when he died? He died, what was it, 40? I'm going to guess it was like 42. Anybody know? And he was out preaching somewhere. Do you know where he was preaching? He was preaching in North Dakota. He's from New Jersey, and he's preaching in North Dakota. Why on earth was he in North Dakota? He was contending for the faith. He was defending the sheep. He got sick and he died. Very young age. Sometimes people today, in fact, a friend of mine who's a theologian refers to Machen's warrior children in a demeaning way. Joe Sobrin said that we live in an age when it's the humble men that fight. And isn't that the truth? This is what J. Gresham Machen wrote about the Virgin Mary. And this is in the virgin birth of Christ. We are indeed, as far as anyone from accepting the Roman Catholic picture of the Blessed Virgin, but we also think that Protestants in their reaction against that picture have sometimes failed to do justice to the mother of our Lord. Few and single indeed are the touches with which the evangelist draws the picture. In other words, the picture isn't you know, pointillism, you know, every single, you know. The picture is sort of suggestive. Do you know what I mean? And it's hinted. It's not many details. And so he says, few indeed and single are the touches with which the evangelist, he's referring to um, Luke, 
writing about it. He says he doesn't tell you much. Fleeting, fleeting only are the glimpses which he allows us into the virgin's heart. And yet how lifelike is the figure there depicted? How profound are the mysteries in that pure and meditative soul? In the narrative of the third gospel, the Virgin Mary is no lifeless automaton, but a person who lives and moves, a person who from that day to this has had power to touch all simple and childlike hearts. So do we love Mary? Many of you have a sibling, an older brother or younger sister, who's better than you at violin or better than you at scripture memory or better than you at singing. And you know that from the day you're born until the day you die, you're competing with your brothers and sisters. You're fighting with them. You're trying to make yourself better than they are. My brother and I are in our 60s now. You know what we do? Yeah. We didn't this time. It was a miracle. We're always competing as to which of us is the greatest. That's what the disciples were doing in the upper room at the Last Supper. It says that they were fighting about which of them was the greatest. You know what they do in elders' meetings at this church? They fight about which of them is the greatest. You know what women do when they get together for nice Christmas parties? <laughs> so we're sinful. All of us are sinful. And isn't it wonderful that we worship the God who sees us as we are and loves us and forgives us? Mary had sin. Mary had sin. Catholics say she was, she was sinless. No, they lie. She had a savior, and his name was Jesus, and she had borne him in her womb. <laughs> That's something. So anyhow, let's, let's, let's observe Christmas by honoring motherhood, and particularly the motherhood of the Blessed Virgin Mary.